And if you don't hold yourself to that same kind of consistency all the time, it can be really freeing. So there are days when I show up to work where I don't feel like working. There are days when I show up to relationships or interpersonal interactions where I don't feel like I have the energy to give to that. That's okay. And I think if we try to pretend like it's not, that's where we actually start to be inauthentic. So for me, it's really about being okay with being in the moment, um, not worrying too much about that consistency through line, and also just realizing that figuring out who you are is really a lifetime project and not something that stops at a certain age. This is Wolfpack Career Chats, your favorite personal and professional development podcast. You will hear inspiring stories, people overcoming obstacles. This is Marcy Bullock, and I devote my life to helping other people figure out what to devote theirs to. Remember my top five Ps. Stay present, trust the process, explore your path, release the pressure valve, and unleash your potential. Hello, this is Marcy Bullock with Wolfpack Career Chats. Today, I have from Los Angeles, California, Dr. Brandon Grimmett. Welcome, Brandon. Thanks, Marcy. Nice to be here. It's so great to have you today. We are going to have a conversation about something that's on a lot of people's minds, and that is how does a student graduate from the university and make a choice to go into their first job and ensure that they're going to feel belonging, ensure that they're going to feel a sense of This is a place where I will be comfortable related to all their different identities. We know there's been a lot going on in our country and diversity, equity, and inclusion is on our mind. So I'd love to have you start off by sharing a little bit about yourself, the identities that you have, and how they've informed your journey in the world. Yeah, happy to do that. So, you know, I live in Los Angeles. I live as a Black gay male. Um, I'm educated. I work at a university. So with all of those identities, you know, I identify as he, him, his. Um, there's both a combination of privilege, but also a combination of minoritized status, both as a member of the LGBTQ family, but also as a black man. And so um, what I often think about is how do I navigate those identities in my day to day life, both as a person and as a family member, but also as a professional. And so for me, the way I really live my life is to think about how I include people. You know, I want to make sure that not just in my professional life, but in my daily life, that people come away from their interactions with me feeling like they've been included. And people that are friends with me know that I like to, you know, hold social gatherings and hopefully they feel included. But it takes a little bit more uh, cognitive effort, I think, to do that in a professional setting. On the other hand, you know, as I mentioned before, I'm educated, I'm employed currently at a university, and that comes with some privilege. And so I'm often thinking about, you know, how can I advance inclusion because of the status that I have or because of the power that I hold? And I hope to get into a little bit of that in the podcast today so students or whoever might be listening to the to the recording understands how they can you know take that uh, forward in their own lives. I'm excited to dive into that. And I know currently you're associate provost at Loyola Marymount University, where you deal with all kinds of diverse people every single day. So tell us about what's that, what's that like at your university, just your hand on the pulse of all of this. Yeah, it's a great institution. You know, I've been at LMU for about six years now. And, you know, we've got 6,000 undergrads, about 4,000 graduate students. And um, we're very close to, to having more students of color than, than not. So that, that creates an interesting opportunity, both being in Los Angeles, but also being at a private Jesuit Catholic institution. I think day to day for me, what I find is that 
Um, the work never stops. There's always something to work on. There's always perhaps an issue that we need to be attentive to. And what has been really fascinating for me professionally is that I don't work specifically in the DEI space. It's not a part of my title. It's not necessarily what people are asking me to do. But I have taken on um, this role as a, as a you know, leader around inclusion because uh, you know I oversee an office. I am a black man. Um, and our entire university is really you know, kind of primed to think about these issues. So day-to-day things that I think about are how can we think about our goals not just being, did we meet meet the goals or not, but how did we meet the goals for particular students of color, for first generation, for women, for international students, for instance? And if we have work to do, how can we not be scared by taking that baseline information and saying, okay, there's a little bit of a gap or a disparity in engagement or outcomes? And so um, I found, Marcy, that it's really helpful to lead from the sidelines sometimes. Sometimes when you're in a role that says you have to do something, you can hold less power, actually. But when you work in career services or alumni relations or other parts of the university, you actually have a voice that might allow people to hear you a little differently. So for me, it's all about career preparation and making sure that our students understand how to use their voice, not just in college, but after they graduate. 100% we're similar in the sense that our, both our roles are leaders in a career center at a university, and we know how much that role has changed over this course of the last 18 months of the pandemic. And hearing you say that you're leading from the sidelines, I, I think is so inspirational because we can all lead from whatever role we're in. And earlier, you mentioned this idea of including people. I really want to hear you tell more about what that means when you're in a professional setting. How do you do that? Well, I think you do it first by listening. I think a lot of leaders and just professionals in general are eager to solve a problem as soon as they've heard about it. But we really need to understand the lived realities of of minoritized people in general so we understand what they've gone through and we understand how we need to protect them from being re-traumatized in the solution that we come up with. Oftentimes, we lean on the people who are encountering challenges to solve their own problems. And uh, if I've learned anything over the past 15 months or so, it's that uh, even though that's an easy place to go as a leader, we often need to do our own work and make sure that we've both analyzed our own thinking, our implicit biases, but but also done our own research and our own learning for that sake. So for me, listening is the first step of that. And there's a couple of different ways I do that. Um, First, I am not afraid to dedicate entire meetings um, to this topic, right? And so even though we've got business to tend to, we've got events coming up and things like that, we do need to step back from time to time to just think about these issues and to hear from our own teams, from our students, from whatever our constituents might be about what their experience has been. On the other hand, I think there's infrastructure that needs to be analyzed and changed. And so sometimes inclusion is not just about good intentions or making people feel welcome. It's about looking at our policies around recruiting, for instance, what kind of employers we put in front of our students and how we prepare our students for those interactions. And sometimes the, the way in which we you know, go about our business from a policy standpoint needs to be looked at as well. So at the end of the day, Marcy, we're both at institutions of higher learning, um, and we want to make sure that we leverage not only the, the brain power at our institutions, but really the educational opportunities. And so sometimes it means leaning on faculty to come in and talk to us about an issue around inclusion or around identity. And we've done a lot of that over the past year. I believe so much in what you said, um, Brandon, and my mom taught me this a long time ago when I was a little girl. You have two ears, Marcy, and one mouth, and there's a reason for that. Listen, and I'm learning so much from you because I often scratch my head and think, 
why don't I have more people of color at this event? I posted it up on the website. Where are they? What should I be doing to ensure that they feel welcome when we have career types of resume workshops, job fairs, et cetera? That's, I, love, I love the way you phrase that question because oftentimes what I hear is, you know, why didn't they come or, you know, what, why are they not interested in this topic? And we have to be careful about asking those questions because what I think about is not, you know, what did they do wrong? But what did we do that could have been done better? So I think about obstacles we can remove for, for students of color, for first generation students, for immigrants, um, whoever you're trying to engage in that in that effort. And for me, it really comes down to relationship building and trust. When we talk to students, they need to know a few things about our programming and about our office before they even buy into it. They first need to know, well, what am I going to get out of this if I dedicate a half hour, an hour on Zoom or in person so the more we can articulate what the learning outcomes might be or what the expected goals of the events are, that's great. And that actually makes for good marketing, by the way. Um, the second thing would be to convey to our audience, who are we in relationship with? And this is extremely important for communities of color because relationship uh, trust is often transferred. So uh, what we tend to do at LMU is we work with our Office of Black Student Services and our Chicano Latino Student Services Office and others to jointly host these events so that the students who they typically trust within those offices can also communicate the value of these events to students, but also we can demonstrate that we're holding them in partnership. So I think telling people what you're going to get out of it so that they know if the investment's worth it, but also conveying the relationships so they know they can trust you is really important. Those collaborations are key. Thank you for for elaborating on that. And in thinking about just our whole university climate, what can we do to contribute to the anti-racist atmosphere, both in the classroom and even in the world? Yeah, I would say, you know, there's a, a number of things that we often do as humans, which is really rooted in our system one thinking. If you don't know what system one thinking is, system one thinking is really about that kind of gut reaction to something you might encounter that's really involuntary, right? And so it might be a reaction um, to some kind of trauma that you see or even some some judgments that we make that we don't know why we make them. You know, in our office, we have to be careful when students come in the office that we don't automatically assume, oh, you must be interested in this industry because you look this way or because you are this gender. You know, women are engineers. We have international students that want to study liberal arts. There's a lot of um, stereotypes out there about what students want to pursue from a career development standpoint. So breaking system one thinking requires, again, listening, but also taking a pause to go back to that, you know, to that customer or client or audience and say, what is it that you want? So that's something that every administrator and every, um, you know, individual at a university should really be paying attention to. I'm still learning a lot. And when I heard you talk about system one thinking, I thought, I'm so guilty of that. I'll, I'm just to tell you a quick example, just on an airplane, when I had turbulence recently coming back from a trip, I heard the female pilot come on and make an announcement. And I said, oh my gosh, I hope she can she can drive this thing. And I'm just a woman myself thinking, wait, we have a female pilot. So it's almost like you don't even know you're doing it. And you recommend that we pause. I like that. I like that. That's hard to do, isn't it? It is hard to do. And, and it's kind of like when you're trying to become a better public speaker, we often use filler words and we don't know we're using them. And the best way that I advise students and clients to do that is just to take a pause so that you think more consciously about what you're about to say. The other thing that you have to do, I think, in order to get through system one thinking is to think about what kinds of images and 
even stories you're exposing yourself to. It's really easy to hop on, you know, Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever streaming service you use and watch content that reinforces a lot of stereotypes about women or about people of color. So what I've tried to do, Marcy, is to think, okay, how much do I need to know about this piece of media or this film or this, you know, whatever it might be that I'm intaking before I decide to go down that path so that I'm not inadvertently reinforcing old stereotypes that don't really do anyone any good. Now, some companies have gotten better about putting out content that challenges those stereotypes, but it's not really perfect anymore. And there's a lot of work we can do as individuals to not take in those ideas or concepts so that we can really balance our our biases as much as possible. And we all have them. So I'm glad that you were vulnerable in mentioning that. And, uh, you know, what, what I'll just tell you is that it's I think it's easy sometimes to to make those, um, you know, those determinations. But the most important thing is that we acknowledge them and that we think about how to augment that. Yeah, we're going to make mistakes. Exactly. And what what you were just sharing, I think, is is so helpful for us to think about because we're taking in this content and we might not even know we're just getting brainwashed to think, oh, well, that's how this group acts because they're portrayed as a villain or whatever we're consuming. So to question that, that's really good. Really good, Brandon. Let me ask you about your um, more about your identities. Thank you for sharing a little earlier about them. Has there been any struggle in your life that you've had to overcome that has influenced how you interact? Yeah, you know, I'm I identify as black as I mentioned before, but but I am biracial. My mom is white, my dad is black, and I think that one of the things that I thought I would be really solid on by now is I thought that I would be um, really settled in my identity. I thought that I would know what it means to be a black man, you know, living in the world in Los Angeles in particular, and then also from an intersectionality standpoint, you add on you know gender and also uh, sexuality. And that, that can complicate things in terms of understanding who you are. I think for me, what's been interesting over the past few years is that I'm discovering that this is an ongoing process, right? A lot of us feel like we're fully formed in college. And then once we enter the, the working world, we're just going to be that same person. But I actually have uh, two degrees in theology. And what I've learned in those um, degrees is that from, from a kind of Buddhist meditation standpoint, there's this concept of the lack of self. And what I really ascribe to that's really freed me about identity is that we're often concerned about consistency. We think that ourselves need to be consistent every turn and that we need to maintain that thread throughout our lives or professional lives or personal lives. Um, There is this concept in in Buddhist theology, which means that you're reinventing yourself every moment and you're reacting to something in the world or you're responding to something in your life. And if you don't hold yourself to that same kind of consistency all the time, it can be really freeing. So there are days when I show up to work where I don't feel like working. There are days when I show up to relationships or interpersonal interactions where I don't feel like I have the energy to give to that. That's okay. And I think if we try to pretend like it's not, that's where we actually start to be inauthentic. So for me, it's really about being okay with being in the moment, um, not worrying too much about that consistency through line, and also just realizing that figuring out who you are is really a lifetime project and not something that stops at a certain age. It's such a journey. I'm a little little ahead of you on the decades. And I will say 100% that I'm, I'm right there saying, you know, wow, this is a part of my history. It's a part of my culture, but it doesn't have to define me. It's interesting. It, it is interesting. And then, you know, back to the race thing, you know, there have been times where I have uh, not felt included um, in, in both races that I identify with. And so that's another challenge that I think a lot of 
mixed race or biracial people have. It's like, you know, the government wants you to identify which category you belong to. And oftentimes we're in the gray. Many of us are in the gray. So thinking about creating your own identity is also really important. Um, and that has a lot of correlation with how we think about professional work, by the way. So um, if we're trying to be a certain identity and try to be included in those different groups, um, if we if we think about the things we have to do to do that, um, we're trying to project our own confidence, our own skill set, our own sense of belonging. We often do that with employers as well. And what I always tell my students is that, you know, even if you find an organization that you love or a company you want to work for, they may not have the exact perfect cult- cultural set of uh, values that you subscribe to, but you can also change that. You, you can become a change maker within the organization. And so if it's 90% there, think about taking the job, but also think about what kind of change you want to make once you join the organization. Great segue into picking the job because I know a lot of college students are looking at different companies and they're reading, oh, we've got diversity, we have this program, and we all took a workshop. But how does a student really make an informed choice about the right organization where they will feel included? Well, if you're talking about the DEI issues, I think there's a couple things I would recommend. The first is to look at the leadership team of the organization or of the division that you're joining. Are there people of color? Are, is there gender balance? Uh, you know, are different voices represented visually in the text that, that's written on the website, et cetera? Uh, I think oftentimes you can learn a lot about who, who, you know, what kind of teams have, have been assembled within that leadership group. Um, the other thing is to look at action, not just words. And so as you look at, you know, mission statements and commitments that different organizations are making, go to their tax forms. You know, go, if they're a nonprofit, go to their 990 forums on GuideStar or on Charity Navigator and find out where they spent their money, right? They might have great statements around inclusion, but are they spending their money in places that are going to make a difference and they're putting, you know, uh, putting that weight behind their words? Um, the other thing that's really helpful that any of us have the opportunity to do is to talk to, to both employees of that organization, but maybe more importantly, former employees. And LinkedIn's uh, filter feature allows you to look at people that used to work at companies Sometimes we're more honest when we left our organizations. So the thing I always tell students is to is to look out for alumni that used to be at the place where you want to work and try to get a hold of them and find out what the true story might be at that organization. All of these are things I think in combination can give you a really good sense of whether an organization or company will be inclusive to your identity. And, you know, be sure to always ask that question. Okay, if it wasn't perfect when you joined, what room is there for change within the culture? And, and how did you forge that change? And you'll learn a lot from that question. There's there's so much in that. And I think talking to the, the former employees is such a great tip because they'll give you the insight, right? And that's going to be different than what a website might say. So maybe there was a mentor program they had and they got a chance to have someone that looks like them inspire them. And you also mentioned these resources to find out how their money is being spent, which I want to make sure all our listeners heard. One of the things was GuideStar, and that's actually available at the NC State uh, Library Wolfpack fans. So that's a wonderful reference to find that out. And what what else did you mention just to make sure everyone caught how to find out how a company spends their dollars? That's a big thing. Yeah, oftentimes it's on their website, their strategic plan or their annual budget. You know, you can see some documentation like that. Nonprofits tend to be a little bit more transparent about it because they have to report um, their nonprofit status to the government. So if you if you do create a free account on GuideStar.org, um, just search the, the nonprofit that you're looking at and the 990 tax forms from previous years will be visible to you. 
Um, in addition, you know, look at impact statements and look at, you know, the, the organizations that they might be working with. Sometimes, again, to my earlier point on relationships, you can tell a lot about an organization based upon who they collaborate with and who they might be doing joint ventures with. And so partnerships, uh, tax forms, all that. That's great. And and let's say you start your first job, you're there, you did all your research, you think, okay, it's not perfect, but it's where I want to be. Maybe I can be a part of the change. You're in one of your meetings the first month of work and a microaggression is observed. And this is this is tough. What do you do when you hear that? Great question. I think uh, the most important thing to think about is what did you hear? And, and do you need to verify what you heard or, or what did you feel or what did you interpret in listening to that? So not everything we hear necessarily means that um, that the intention that we assume is behind it. But I have to say that sometimes intentions don't matter and oftentimes they don't. Right. Especially best intentions that result in bad outcomes. So my my take for this question Mercy is to do a little bit of investigation on your own to maybe talk to a colleague that you can trust and say, Hey, I heard this in a meeting. You were there too. Did you have, did you come away with the same, um, you know, perspective? And depending on how they respond to that, you can kind of take your cue. If someone else also felt uh, discriminated against or felt like they were targeted, um, it can mean that you weren't alone in thinking that. It doesn't mean that just because you were alone, you shouldn't act upon it. But as a student who's navigating this identity from student to professional, I think we do have to acknowledge that um, sometimes it's easier to speak out if you have power. And you can have power in a couple ways. You can have it by knowing that someone else feels the same way. And therefore, when you go to your manager to talk about that issue, you know you're not alone. The other thing is to really understand the policies around the companies that you work for. So every organization, for the most part, does a pretty good job of orienting you as a new employee. Pay attention to that orientation because oftentimes they're sharing with you what the behavioral expectations are, what the policies are, and that the the incident that you just mentioned, this hypothetical one, is probably going against company policy if it's a microaggression. So, you know, I think understanding how to navigate company policy, but also how to, to understand if there are people in your corner can be really helpful. As you gain more momentum and steam and more power in your role, get promoted, can actually lead teams and things like that, it becomes easier I think, to wield your power and to speak out on behalf of people that have less power. So, you know, it's a great interview question, actually, um, to ask a potential future manager. Ask them, you know, if uh, microaggression were to occur on your team, how would you as a leader respond to it? And that will tell you everything you need to know about whether that person will be an advocate for you if you're in that situation. Perfect. And everyone's always wondering, what should I ask? And that's that's a question that is probably not asked very often. So I appreciate you giving that advice. All right, we're going to hop in our time machine now and go into the year 2041, 20 years into the future. What will your future wiser Brandon need to tell the Brandon of today? What do you need to hear? A great question. I have not had this question before. It's, it's really um, interesting to think about how to respond to this. You know, 20 years from now, I think it's important to note that most of us will have many different careers in that amount of time. And I often am, you know, focused on what comes next, what's coming after this job, what's coming after this project, this role that I have. And what I've learned throughout the years is that it's really important to, to again, listen to what's around you. Listen to the people that see you and they know the skills that you have. And they say, have you thought about this? And so looking back, 
I, I could already tell that 20 years from now, I'm going to say, well, you know, each of the jobs that I got were really through networking and really through understanding that someone saw in me a skill that I maybe didn't see in myself and encouraged me to do something. I'm going to have 20 more years of that, which is really encouraging. But I think the other piece is to, is to think about, you know, you're still exploring. You're still exploring your identity. There's going to be things that happen in the world that continue to challenge who we are as people, who we are as people of color. Um, and we'll have to respond to those. And so for me, even though my ultimate goal is to be including people and to make sure that uh, if someone has interacted with me as a professional, as a person, that they come away uh, feeling better about um, where they are because of that, I also know that it's really important to make sure that, you know, I'm open to those different um, possibilities of happenstance, right? And so not having everything planned out is really important. Um, so you can be open to different opportunities all the time. Thank you, Brandon. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Marcy.